No, 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 no. Where's the guy just saying? Where'd he go? He, he said, I will go, and then he left. No. You know what? It didn't matter about the track. It didn't matter. You did that. God used you to do that song right. And, and it just, it got to me. That song is a wonderful song. And I looked over at Margie, and we were looking at each other. Uh, maybe you guys don't know this. You kind of have a heretic here for your evening meetings. We left the church in September. Um, what that really means is I quit pastoring a local congregation. <laughs> and um, Margie and I are going around now, full-time revivalists is what we're doing. And um, we go to churches for 10 days at a time, and we actually give a concentrated 13-meeting series in 10 days. And um, we've gone to 15 churches since we started in September. And we live in this fifth wheel. We have a home, but you know we're there maybe three days out of the month. And... And so we live in this fifth wheel, and I'm telling you, if, if you had, if you could have heard that song just now through my through my mind and my heart, I will go. I will leave the things that I'm comfortable. I will cut off the things that I'm used to. I will go. I will go. I will go. For what? For Jesus. You know. I mean, it's. I, he's coming. He's he's coming back soon, and it's time. You know, let me tell you what I think. This, this is not in my notes, and this will make us go about three minutes longer than we planned, okay? So, I think, I have some friends that are doing the, taking this seriously, and they're, it's just, I'm, I'm inspired by them. Um, you, know in, you know when Jesus talked about Jerusalem and the fall of Jerusalem, he gave the, he gave the signs? And then he said, he said, when you see... Um, the abomination of desolation. Then it says, "Let the reader take note." You know. Then he says, "Let the get out, get out of jo- get out of dodge." You know, is what he says, right? Yeah. And, and, and in Desire of Ages, and then also, yeah, in Desire of Ages, Ellen White says that um, when Jerusalem was besieged, and it looked like they were going under, everybody thought, "This is this is curtains. We don't have a chance." And then, for reasons they didn't understand, suddenly the armies withdrew. Most of the people in Jerusalem said, well, hey, all right, we got that one licked, and let's get back to life as usual, and I'm sure glad they didn't destroy all of my stuff, you know, because this means a lot to me. And, um, but as the armies left, the Christians left too. And as our of Ages says, when the army returned... Not one Christian lost their lives in Jerusalem. Not one Christian lost their lives. Because they didn't sucker for a temporary sense of security. Now here's my three minute speech. That was the preliminary. (laughs) I think our economy is going to get better for a short while. And I think the reason is because God's going to give Christians one last chance to liquidate their assets and throw everything into the altar for Him to advance the kingdom of heaven as long as we can do it. Because when the economy goes down, you're going to go, man, I wish I'd thrown that CD into the work of God instead of let it go down the drain in a bank somewhere. And I think that the economy is going to surge for just a little while. And we're going to get a chance 
to regroup. Now, there'll be a lot of people, just like in Jerusalem, that go, hey, well, now that's all right. I thought we were going to rebound, and it's good, and this is good. No, I'm glad I didn't lose my stuff. You know what? You're going to lose your stuff anyway. It's all going to burn. And I want to make a difference for Jesus with whatever resource I still have to make a difference with for him. So, you know, we put up our house for sale. We bought a fifth wheel. We said, we're going on the road. And this is like, you know, it's because I believe it. I believe, he's, I believe he's coming back. And I just want to spread the good news that you can have a friend in Jesus. And you can become better acquainted with him than you already are because we can all grow closer to Jesus. All of us. Let's have one more prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that we still have opportunities to grow in knowing you. We don't have to be lackadaisical. We don't have to be lukewarm. As the spirit wind blows upon our hearts, I just pray that the the embers there will burst into flames that will spread the light of your kingdom and your glory and your grace far and wide. Tonight as we look again in the book of Revelation, I pray for a Holy Spirit anointing for all of us, myself included. I want to be used. I ask you to throw, just clear out the channel, whatever you need to do in me so that you can work through me and that you'd give all of us the ability to hear what your Spirit wants to say to each one. Maybe different for each person here tonight. So I pray you give everyone the gift of ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we took a little look in Revelation. And I want to look some more in that book, book of Revelation. Um, Tonight, I want to look in Revelation 14. Have you ever heard of Revelation 14? Okay, so this must be an Adventist audience. Revelation 14 is where we find the three angels' messages. And if there's one thing Seventh-day Adventists have been big about, focused on, proclaiming, it's these three angels' messages. Probably, I would say that the majority of Seventh-day Adventist churches have in some way some insignia on their letterhead, something on the sign, something somewhere. They have these some, some graphical representation of three angels with trumpets. It's just, that's just like almost, you know, just there. You see it everywhere among Adventist churches and believers. Now, traditionally, Seventh-day Adventists, when they think of the three angels' messages, Seventh-day Adventists, traditionally, I'm going to put up here on the screen, they think of... <clears throat> This is the traditional interpretation for the three angels' messages. Number one, a warning about judgment. That's in verse 7. Number two, a plea to stay out of false churches. That's in verse 8. And number three, an indictment against the beast. And that's in verse 9. Those are the traditional interpretations of the three angels' message. But tonight, I am motivated to look for Jesus in the three angels' messages. I want to look. Remember last night I said it was his book. And in the front of my Bible, I have five different quotations that I've gathered over the years, all from the writings of Ellen White, which she says that if Jesus isn't seen as the heart and core and 
essence and substance of our doctrines, each one, then they haven't been taught correctly. Well, that's a challenging thing to think about. You know, so let's just take, for example, one that we call the state of the dead. And that's a terrible name for a doctrine, isn't it? Makes you think of Nebraska or something. You know? it's just, But you know what we mean. When we say the state of the dead, we say that's the doctrine that, that, that says you're, when you're dead, you're dead, 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 dead. You know? You didn't go to heaven. You're no, no, no soul wandering off to some early reward. No, you're dead, 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 dead. And I'm going to ask you a question. Where's Jesus as the heart and core and center and substance of that? Dead, 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 dead. Ah. Well, wouldn't it be great if when people heard us talk about the state of the dead, the thing that came first and foremost to their mind was that Jesus is the resurrection and the life and that he has promised that he's coming back for his friends and that he will wake any of them up if they've fallen asleep early. And so the real deal about the state of the dead is to be friends with the resurrection and the life. All of a sudden, you have a relationship with Jesus just screaming at you from that doctrine. You know? And the challenge is to see him screaming out of every doctrine. And if the doctrine doesn't have him screaming out of it, then it wasn't taught correctly. That was what we were told. And I have several gems that remind me that that's the, that's the deal. So I'm thinking, how can we see Jesus in the three angels' messages? Most people, if they were asked what the first angel's message was, they would probably say the hour of God's judgment has come. <clears throat> but is that really the first angel's message? The hour of God's judgment has come. Well, let's look at it. Revelation 14, 6. <clears throat> then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. That's the first, that's the beginning, that's verse 6. The angel had the what? Everlasting, Everlasting gospel. And he was going to preach it to who? Every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people. Everlasting gospel. Now, would that have to include Muslims and Buddhists? Yeah. So what's the message that we need to take to Muslims and Buddhists? Watch out for judgment, stay away from false churches, and beware of the beast. Is that going to be something that Muslims and Buddhists are just going to rally around? And yet, traditionally, those are the three summaries of the traditional interpretation that most of us have grown up hearing. What was it we were supposed to give them? The everlasting gospel. So what is the everlasting gospel? Well, the next verse, Revelation 14, 7 says, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, the hour of His judgment has come is there. It's there. But is that the everlasting gospel? <clears throat> 
I'd like to suggest to you that the hour of God's judgment has come is not the message. I would say it this way. It is not the message. It's only part. It's a significant part, but it's only part of the message. For starters, I want to remind you that it was the everlasting gospel. And according to Daniel, the hour of God's judgment began in 1844. Is that everlasting? It's not everlasting. Everlasting goes back farther, 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 farther. So what is the everlasting part of this message? In order to try and get a handle on it, we're going to do something that I don't do very well, so I had to work hard at preparing this, these slides, um, and I'm going to be depending on them. So <clears throat> if you're an English major, please be kind to me after the meeting. But in order to try and figure out what the everlasting part of this message is, we're going to try and diagram it. There are three parts, if you diagram this compound sentence. Three parts to this message. Right. <clears throat> Here comes part one. Fear God. Now, what's the verb? Fear. What's the subject? Ah. God is the object. You is the subject. And it's understood. You, and there's some English majors out here. People that did better than me anyway. You fear God. Okay, that's part one. You fear God. Next slide, please. So you is understood. All right? Okay, here comes part two. You, which is understood. That's why we have it in parentheses over here. You give glory. All right. What's the subject in this part? You. What's the verb? Give. What's the object? Glory. And then there's a little prepositional phrase that comes tags on. That'll be the next slide. To him. All right? That's the second part. You give glory to him. Now, part three looks like this. Worship him. Once again, you is understood. Okay, so you is the subject. What's the verb? Worship. What's the object? Him. You all get an A. Now, these are the everlasting parts. So, if these are the everlasting parts, where does judgment fit in? Well, if you read it, some people have thought it's a prepositional phrase. (laughs) I'm going to tell you something that happened to my dad. Um, He said one time in a church that he thought it was a prepositional phrase. But after the meeting, it was happened to be in Mountain View, California, where he said that. And that's where the Pacific Press used to be. And there was an editor from the Pacific Press Publishing Association who was sitting in the congregation that day. After church, he came up to my dad and he said, that's not a prepositional phrase. He said, that is an adverbial clause. <laughs> so dad thanked him for setting him straight, you know, and... Next time he made that statement in public, he felt he was in good standing, good form, as he called it, an adverbial clause. But there was an English professor from a college that was sitting in that congregation. 
And she came up to him after that meeting. She said, I beg to differ with you. That's not an adverbial clause. I don't know where you got that idea, she said. But it is actually a conjunctive clause. (laughs) Oh, he said, of course, a conjunctive clause. Yeah, I see it now. It's so plain. So the next time he had a chance to talk about this in a place where there were educated people, he felt like he could safely call it a conjunctive clause because he had gotten that straight from the professor of the English department. But after that meeting, <clears throat> happened to be at Andrews University, <laughs> someone from the Greek department came up. <laughs> they said, no, no, no. They said, it's a causal clause. A causal clause. So... For tonight, what I'm going to call it is an adverbial conjunctive prepositional phrase clause. (laughs) That ought to get it covered. We should be pretty safe. And if anybody has something else to add, please don't tell me. (laughs) But the point of why I just shared that part with you is this. The hour of his judgment is only part and it is a subsidiary part to the main message. It is not the main message. The first angel's message is not the hour of his judgment has come. That's just a subsidiary part of the main message. The main message was, you fear God, you give glory to him, you worship him, for the hour of his judgment has come. That's the main message. You do these things. Now, there's a common thread. There's a common thread in all three messages of these angels that we call the three angels' messages. There's a common thread. I want to put it on the screen for you right now, and we're going to unpack that in the next two or three nights. The common thread in the three angels' messages is this. It is a warning against self-worship and an invitation to the deeper life of faith instead of works, especially in the time of judgment. That common thread runs through all of them. I'm told, though I, don't, I haven't verified this, but I'm told that the British Navy, the, the ropes that they use for all of their ships and vessels, you can always tell if it's a rope that belongs to the British Navy because they have a woven scarlet thread that goes through all of their ropes from one end to the other. It's a scarlet thread. It's in that way of identifying their ropes. I guess they don't probably call them ropes. They probably call them lines or sheets or whatever. But <clears throat> the scarlet thread that well, is woven through the three angels' messages is this warning against self-worship or self-dependence or man-dependence and an invitation to the deeper life of faith instead of works, especially in the time of judgment. That's the thread. And at this point, I would like to read three paragraphs that were written to our church some time back. Here's the first one, Manuscript 15, 1888. Something, some, something significant about 1888. There are but few, even of those who claim to believe it, that understand the third angel's message. And yet, this is the message for this time but few, even of those who claim to believe it. Here's another one, 5T715. Not all of our ministers who are giving the third angel's message really understand what constitutes the message. Isn't that interesting? Evangelism, page 196, the next one. 
The third angel's message must be presented as the only hope, the only hope for the salvation of a perishing world. The theme of greatest importance is the third angel's message, embracing the messages of the first and second angels. Did you catch that? The third angel's message is the only hope... Sorry, I stepped in front of it. Is the only hope of salvation for a perishing world. Now, is the only hope for a perishing world, watch out for the beast... No, that's not the only hope for a perishing world. And if we as Adventists are noted for lambasting the beast and pointing out false churches, we better ask ourselves, now how is that the only hope of salvation for a perishing world? About 126 years ago, a group of people got very excited about the subject of Jesus and His righteousness alone. Righteousness by faith in Christ alone. They got very excited about that. But the old guard got nervous. And as they heard people beginning to say, Jesus is our message. It's all about him. They got nervous. The old guard got nervous. They said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Kind of like the letter that was written to my conference president. We need some real Adventist preaching. So let's get tough. Let's give the undiluted message. Let's make sure people know what day, Sabbath, about the dead, not in heaven yet, about the 2300 days, And the second coming, they said, we've got to preach those things. Preach those things. This message of Christ's righteousness alone, that's not our main message. The old guard, they got nervous. And the old guard got so nervous that they began writing letters into the Review and Herald. And they were very concerned. They wrote so many letters to the Review and Herald expressing their concern that finally, in April of 1890... Ellen White was compelled to write this. Several have written me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Well, the old guard said, but what about, but, 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 what about, but... The third angel's message in verity is the message of righteousness by faith in Christ alone. That's what she said. How could we have gotten so far off base? Well, maybe you say, we weren't really off base. Were we? You know, the year before she wrote what I just put up there a moment ago, it is the uh, message in Verity. The year before that, this will help you know whether or not we're on base. This is what she wrote in 1889. 
There is not one in a hundred who understands for himself the Bible truth on the subject of justification by faith, which is so necessary to our present and eternal welfare. Not one in a hundred who understands for himself the Bible truth on the subject of justification by faith. Not one in a hundred. Well, now, if it's true that justification by faith in Christ alone is the third angel's message in verity, then it's also true that not one in a hundred understand for themselves the third angel's message. Do you see the, the logic there? Not one in a hundred. Did I jump too fast or did you actually see what I just said? We read one statement that said, justification by faith is the three angels' message in verity. Then we read another statement which said, not one in a hundred understand the message of justification by faith. So that means that not one in a hundred understand the three angels' message. Okay. Well, you say, <clears throat> sure glad that was another century or two back. That was them. This is now. Do you know about 20, maybe 22 years ago, I'm not sure exactly the date, our denomination conducted a thing they called Value Genesis. You ever heard of that? They wanted to do a study among our, um, our school-aged our, our school children in Christian schools. And they, it was a lot of questions they asked the kids, and they did a sample. They tried to do a sampling that represented the entire North America. That, you know what their conclusion was when they finished? Their top two points that they learned from Value Genesis was our young people lack a grace orientation, which is another way of saying they believe in justification by works. Okay, That was the number one. And number two should be no surprise. Because if you think justification by works is the way you win favor with God, then number two should be no surprise. Our young people have no assurance of salvation. See, if you think your assurance of salvation is based on your performance, then you're never going to have assurance of salvation. Because you're always going to know that your performance could be better. And even if your performance isn't better, you know your heart could be better. Unless you're a liar to yourself. And the heart is, great, is, 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 is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah said. Okay, so that was like 22, 23 years ago, Value Genesis. We learn our young people lack a grace orientation and have no assurance of salvation. So we say, well, what's missing? Righteousness by faith. And so we took note of that. Do you know what? They did a follow-up study to Value Genesis just a few years back. And do you know what they found? After having a couple of decades to be working on the problem that we perceive from our study, our young people have less of a grace orientation and more lack of assurance of salvation than they had the first time around. In our Christian schools. Now, I'm not trying to pin everything on the Christian schools because you know where your young people get their information? They get it from three places. They get it from school, yes. They get it from church, yes. And they get it from home. That's where they learn it. 
And I'm going to tell you one more thing that indicates this is not something that was limited to the last century or two. Surveys have been taken in Adventist churches across North America by several different groups. They all come up with the same statistic. One question, anonymous, don't put your name, just answer the question. Here's the question. Remember, now this is given to people in church. These are the people who attend. Last night I told you about the, you know, the disproportionate statistic related to how many there are, either former or non-attending, and how many attend. Well, this is the people who attend. Here's the question. Do you spend any sort of personal, private time alone with Jesus through his word and prayer on a daily basis for the purpose of becoming better acquainted with him? Yes or no? That's the question. I could summarize it a little quicker, more, a little more quickly by saying, do you have a meaningful, daily, personal relationship with Jesus based on studying about his life and communing with him in prayer? Do you? Yes or no? Daily. 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 North America surveys, samples all over the country. The statistic is always the same. Four out of five say no. Four out of five say no. They probably don't go to camp meeting. So you're off the hook. But four out of five say no of the people who attend. Okay, well, what is then? So you can help them understand what's missing. I'm going to tell you. And then you can pass it on to them, those people, those four out of five. What is the message of justification by faith? What is it? What is this message that not one in a hundred understand for themselves? Well, here's another quotation from Testimonies to Ministers. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. Now, how much can man do for himself towards salvation or towards overcoming? Now, don't forget, I just added a second part. I didn't just stop with salvation. I said towards overcoming also. Well, how did you know that was my next slide? (laughs) See, a lot of us have had the idea that justification is by faith alone. You're forgiven. You can't earn God's forgiveness. Nothing you can do will make God love you more. You're forgiven by faith. You accept that by faith. That's justification, forgiveness. You're seen as though you've never sinned. That's wonderful news. And we're pretty pretty big on you know, championing that. But you know what? Most of us think that perfecting a Christ-like character is something that we are responsible for doing as a way of showing God our, gra- our gratitude for Him giving us salvation by justifying us. So, so like we get the forgiveness free. 
then we work on the Christ-like character as a response to show him how grateful we are for the forgiveness. And so what we have here, actually, is if I was to tell you you could have any car in the world that you wanted for no money down, then you might want to ask me a question before you accept the offer. And that would be, well, what are the monthly payments? Right? And if I told you the car's no money down, but the monthly payments are going to be 5000 a month for the rest of your life, would you want that car? No way. Right? That car would be a monkey on your back. And yet we come along and we tell people, <laughs> justification is no money down. It's free. You don't do a thing for it. Sanctification is what you do to show God that you're serious about accepting what he gave you. You're going to to try and perfect a Christ-like character now. So so what we really said was, you get the car for no money down, but you're going to have monthly payments that are going to kill you off. Before this week is over, I'm going to show you for sure and for graphic and for clear and from playing from God's word that a Christ-like character is his gift to us. Salvation by faith includes justification and sanctification. They're both gifts. They both come through the same source, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They both do. Our work is to spend the time focusing on Jesus. Okay, back to this next slide. I said already, she stole my thunder over here. Somebody did. I said, how much can we really do towards salvation or overcoming? John 15, 5, without me or apart from me, as the New King James says, uh, you can do nothing. Now, how much is nothing? (laughs) A lot of people like to say nothing is zero. And so that's the next slide. There it is. But someone told me, no, no, that's not nothing. Nothing is what you have left after you peel a zero. So if you remove the peeling on a zero, you're left with nothing. All right, but, it, but this John 15, 5, and say, without me, you can do nothing. Zippo, nothing. Now, oh, that's okay. Yeah, let's go back. We're ready for it. Philippians 4, 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even walk on water. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I'm going to try and do something earlier. I already showed you how I'm not much on, on English. Now, I'm going to show you how I'm not much on math, too, okay? Um, I want to put something on the screen that is it's meant to um, try to make a gra- graphically represent something, but mathematically, it doesn't work perfectly. And so I, I already learned this, just the same way that my dad learned about the conjunctive clause thing, you know? I learned that this next illustration I'm going to put on the board doesn't work for especially engineers. So... I've been talked to by numerous engineers different places and they always want to make sure I know that but this is not for math. This is just graphic. Okay, so here we go. <clears throat> what I want to do is on the board there, on the blackboard, I'm trying to represent the John 15.5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So what I'm doing here is Y is going to stand for you. Without Christ, X is going to stand for Christ. U, Y minus X equals Nothing. Okay, that's just graphic. I'm just trying to make it look so we can see it on the screen. All right? That's John 15, 5. Now, here's Philippians 4, 13, trying to be put on a blackboard, too. And that would be, I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. So, Y, that's you, plus X, that's Christ, equals, and I put a little sideways 8, which is supposed to be infinity. So, 
You plus Christ equals endless. Infinity. All right. Can you live with my math so far? Okay. All right, now, now I want to I make one more kind of illustration with it. So the next slide is going to show them both. Okay. In the one slide, I mean, in the one, in the one equation up here, you plus Christ equals everything. Over here, you without Christ equals nothing. Okay, in one equation, everything's getting done. In the other equation, nothing's getting done. So, what's making the difference between everything getting done and nothing getting done? That's my next slide. X makes the difference. If without him nothing gets done, but with him everything gets done, then who did whatever it is that gets done? Christ. That's why he gets the glory and we don't. He did the work. He ought to get the glory. All right, so now, if 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 he makes all the difference and he does the work, then what's left for us to do? Here it is. Get with Christ and stay with Christ. That's our job. Our part is to come to him, to seek him morning by morning, day by day, meet him in his word, fellowship with him, become better acquainted with him, Ask him to reveal himself to you, build a friendship, walk with him, talk with him, commune with him in prayer, and share with others what you're learning as you experience this wonderful friendship with Jesus. That's our part. That's called relationship. You work on the relationship, and he does the all things. He does the all things. That, my friends, is the essence of salvation by faith. That's it. Now, I just used the word salvation by faith instead of justification or sanctification by faith because salvation by faith is a bigger word. It encompasses both of them. And they're both included in the package. So... Salvation by faith. The essence of salvation by faith is a personal relationship with Christ. You'll never have a relationship with someone you don't spend time with. So spending time with Him, communing with Him, becoming better acquainted with Him, is the heartbeat of salvation by faith. Does that make sense? It makes sense? How does it all fit into the three angels? Well, earlier I said there were three parts... I'm going to do a quick look now at the three parts. Part number one was fear God. Remember that? You fear God. Now, I think we know, don't we, that that doesn't mean be terrified by him. That's not, that's not what the word fear means there in that, in that use. It's not to be terrified. It's to hold him in awe. To revere him. Um, I looked it up even just a, just a little few hours ago. And it's to hold him in awe, to revere him exceedingly. You know, we talk about before Jehovah's awful throne. 
It's A-W-E. Awe. Wow. Revere. You fear God. You hold Him in awe. You hold Him in reverence. C.S. Lewis wrote a metaphor of the great controversy. And in that metaphor, he has a lion who represents Jesus based on the lion of the tribe of Judah. And in one of his passages in the metaphor, some children who have not yet met the lion but are supposed to meet him, they don't know that he's a lion. He has a name, Aslan. And they don't know who he is, but they know he's really important. And that everybody looks, looks up to him around here where they find themselves. And So I want to read you a little paragraph excerpted from there. They just found out <clears throat> that he was a lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, came the reply. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just plain silly. Then he isn't safe? asked Lucy. Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. So now, they had a proper perspective. What do you do before... You know, in, in Scripture, every time someone is actually confronted with a tangible sense of the presence of God, what do they do? Poof! They like hit the dirt, man. They cover their heads. They are just, they are, talk about reverence, awe. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. You, he could, Jesus said to the 12 disciples, you know, if I just spoke the word, God sent 12 legions of angels to take me out of this Garden of Gethsemane and toast these soldiers. Safe? But he's good. He's good. He's good. And as you come to know Him, the more you know Him, the more you are humbled by that knowledge and filled with awe that He... Remember the first night I talked to you? John was saying, don't forget who He was and who he is. The more you know who he was and who he is, the more humbled you are that he wants to hang out with you. You just, that's inconceivable. Go figure. He wants to hang out with me? He wants a friendship with me? How could that be? Wonder, oh heavens, be astonished, oh earth. Inconceivable. The more you know him, the more you fear him in the sense of awe and reverence, okay? That was part one, fear God. You fear God. 
Your fear of God will be proportional to your knowledge of him. And the three angels' messages are telling us to fear him, which is another way of saying, know him. (laughs) If you know who you're talking to and about and with and so on, you'll have awe and reverence and respect exceedingly, exceedingly. The second part of the message was you give glory to him. Remember? We diagrammed it. You give glory to him. If I have not yet discovered that I cannot save myself, if I haven't discovered that yet, if I am trying hard to work on being good and not being bad, if that's the focus of my attention, if I'm not taking time with the Word, and in prayer for something more than just 911, oh Lord, get me out of this jam. If I am not involved in this kind of personal relationship with Jesus, but I have some hope of being saved one day, I am depending on myself and my own efforts. Do you understand that? I'm depending on myself. I hope to go to heaven. I have no personal relationship with Jesus, but I hope to go to heaven. Well, now, what am I going to use as my reason for getting in? My own righteousness. There is no righteousness apart from Jesus. None. So if there's no righteousness apart from Him, the only way I'm ever going to have righteousness is if I am in relationship with Him. That's why the four-fifths of our church need to be in relationship with Him so they're not lost in the church. Did you know you can be lost in the church? Jesus told three stories about lost and found. There's a lost son, a lost sheep, and a lost coin. The lost son set out to be lost. He chose to be rebellious. He went off in the far country, spent his father's substance in riotous living, and then he wondered if his father would ever accept him back again. He knew how to get home, but he had chosen to be rebellious and he wondered if he'd ever be able to be accepted again. Good news. The father is looking with binoculars for his son and he runs out to meet him when he's yet a long way off and he says, forget the speech, here's the robe, here's the ring, you're part of the family, welcome back. My son was dead, but he's alive again. That's good news, isn't it? It's good news. Anybody can come home, even rebels, who chose to leave and knew what they were doing when they chose to leave. Second lost story he tells is the sheep. Now, a sheep can get lost pretty easily. And when a sheep is lost, the sheep knows it's lost, but it doesn't know how to get back. The son knew how to come back. He's just afraid he wouldn't be accepted. The sheep doesn't even know how to get back because sheep aren't very smart. That's why when they're lost, you'll hear them say it regularly and quite frequently they keep repeating it, back, back, back. They want to get back, but they don't have a clue. Good news in that story. There's a shepherd out looking for sheep. And he finds them. Because they don't know how to get back. They know they're lost, but they don't know what to do about it. Good news, shepherd's out looking. He tells one more story. And I love this one. This is a story that's bread and butter for a revivalist. It's about lost coins. Where is the coin lost? In the house. 
Does a coin know it's lost? No. no. Sheeps know they're lost. Sons know they're lost. Coins don't know they're lost. It's possible to be in the house and be lost and not know you're lost. Good news! Jesus told a people in that parable, a woman represents God looking for lost coins, finding lost coins in the house and throwing parties. And that's what revival's all about. And then like this morning speaker said in the morning devotional, when you get revived sheep, they affect the whole community. Revived believers impact more than just their own little circle of church family. They affect the whole community. Right? But why did I talk about that? Because I was saying, if I am not in relationship with Jesus, I have no righteousness of my own. Therefore, I am depending on my own efforts to get me into heaven if I hope to go to heaven, but I have no relationship with Jesus day by day, day by day, day by day. And if I should happen to get saved, depending on myself, who do you suppose would get the glory? Me. I'd get the glory. It is so easy to take the glory. It is so easy to take the credit. One of the things I appreciate so much about my wife, Margie, I don't know anybody who defers more regularly and more quickly to Jesus getting credit if you give her a compliment. If I say something nice to her, she always says, praise Jesus for that. And I'm thinking to myself sometimes, you don't have to praise him for everything. I mean, you you did a good job. Can't I just say you did a good job? That's what I think in my head. And that's the, that's the thought that was put in there by the devil. Because Jesus is hearing her say that. And he's saying, Margie, I'm, I'm proud of you for realizing that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or turning. Every good gift. So I love her for that, among other things. It is so easy to take the credit. I was a Bible teacher at Campion Academy. I had a van that had been sitting for months in the driveway, and I needed to run down to the bank between classes. I had a little break. I had a class period of free time. So I thought, I'll run over there and I'll drive the van because it hasn't been ridden for a long, driven for quite a while. I'll get the bugs out, kind of, you know, be good for it. And I'll use it instead of the car that we regularly use. And I'll go down there and I'll make that deposit and whatever I need to do at the bank. I'll go to the drive-thru, you know. So I jumped in the van, which hadn't been run for quite a while. And I turned the key, you know, the on position. It kind of went... And started. And I thought, oh, whew. That battery's pretty low, but I'm glad it started. This will be good. This is all the more reason to drive it down because it's going to give a little charge and get things going, you know, get that battery a little juice. So I drove on down, and I got into the line, the, the drive-through window of the bank, and it was one of these kind of drive-throughs where 
They have created like curbs on both sides of this lane that you're coming in on, and they have plants and flowers on it, and, you know, and all this. And so you're kind of it's like being on the on the autobahn at, at Disneyland. You know, it's kind of like you know you just kind of got to go wherever. And if there's people behind you or in front of you, and so I'm moving on in, and I get all the way up to the window, and the lady slides a little box out. Whoop, she says, "Can I help you?" And I ran out of gas. I had no idea. I hadn't looked at the gauge. I hadn't thought four or five months ago. It's been since, you know, I didn't check the gauge. And so I ran out of gas. About nine cars behind me. It's a three-quarter ton van. Heavy. Big thing. I'm by myself. She says, can I help you? I said, I just ran out of gas. She said, you came to the wrong place. I said, man, I, I'm sorry. I'll try to see if I can get this thing out of the way. So I get out of the van and I struggle and struggle to get the thing moving. And I barely kind of inch it down through the little thing. And I get it to where I can kind of get off of the, the curb area, get out where the curbs quit, and get out of the way for the cars to pass through. I look at my watch. I have to get back to teach my next Bible class. I don't have much time. So I run down the street, two blocks to where I see a gas station. I come running up. I say to the guy, do you have a can of gas? I, I need to get a can of gas. I said, I just ran out of gas in the, in the line at the bank. And, and the van hasn't been run for months. And the battery's nearly dead. And I don't know if it's going to start. I'm just really, you know, sweating and bullets. And i got to get back to a, a responsibility. It starts in, you know, eight, whatever number of minutes. He said, okay, 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 we'll give you some gas. And he, and he puts, fills a can of gas. And as he's putting the can, filling up the can with, with gas, I'm telling him once again about the fact that the battery's nearly dead, and I'm worried that I don't have enough juice in my battery to pump the gas all the way forward from the tank, all the way up to the engine. So the last thing he says to me as I turn to run back to my van with the can of gas in my hand, the last thing he says to me is, good luck! And I run. I get back, I pour the gas in my tank, I jump back in the car, and I think, you know, the Bible says he notices when sparrows fall from their nest, and he counts the hairs on our head. He's concerned about minute details that aren't what you'd call salvation issues. So this ought to, this ought to qualify. You know, I could pray about this. So I said a prayer. And I said, Lord, this isn't going to make or break it. You know, I mean, you know, I'm going to trust you and love you no matter what. But it'd sure be really wonderful if you get the car to start, if, you, if you'd see that the gas came all the way forward and before the battery goes dead, trying to pump it. So I get back to teach Bible. I just kind of add that to him. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to use a little psychology with God. <laughs> I said, amen. I turned the key. Do you know what? It started on the first turnover. No, it didn't even go. It went, boom, and it started, and it stayed running. It didn't cough. It didn't sputter. <gasps> Whoa! Thank you, Jesus. And so I pulled out, and I raced back over, because now this has taken some time, and I'm going to be late if I don't make you know high speed. So I ran over to the gas station, and I come in with the van. And I said, can you just give me like two bucks more? You know, that's back when you could buy gas for a couple bucks. You know? 
I said, could you just put a couple more bucks in the tank? Because I don't have time for you to fill it right now. And I got to go. And here's your can. And he goes, okay, great. Yeah. And he's pumping that two gallons in or whatever the two, the two, you know, the, the two bucks worth for me in. And he says, I thought you said it wasn't going to start because the battery was so dead. And do you know what I said? I said, well, I guess I just got lucky. This woman wanted to have me just excommunicated. I saw. <laughs> Get that guy off the platform. I said it. I guess I just got lucky and then I hurried off to teach Bible. I didn't have to give that guy studies on 27 fundamentals. All I, I, never, I didn't even know the fella. All I needed to say was, Hey, you know what? I said a prayer and God answered. That's all I needed to say. But you know what? It's real easy to take the credit or at least to not give it where it's due. It's real easy. Romans 4.20, Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God. Gave glory to God. There's even more subtle ways to give glory to ourselves. I still remember when I first started into the pastoral ministry. Pastors have to go a couple times a year to um, professional growth meetings. And you're, you know, away with a bunch of guys for a couple, two or three days. And something happened every time I'd go to these growth meetings, these professional growth meetings, it always made me feel a little, I don't know, off balance. What would happen would be, at the end of the final meeting, they'd always call up the person who had had the most baptisms in his church since the last time we had a meeting, and they gave him a $150 Bible. And they made a big deal, and they told us how many baptisms he'd had, and and um, then they asked him, what was your secret of success? And he would say, well, you know, it's the, it's the foyer ministry or it's the visitation. It's the, you know, it's got... I, and he would give us his little tricks of the trade and then we were encouraged to go out and try to use those tricks and see if we get as many baptisms by the next time ourselves. And then they're going to have another contest and see who gets the Bible. And I used to just shudder. I just feel sick in my stomach every time that, that part of the meeting would come. I remember sitting back there through several meetings, several sessions, I mean, like, over a course of several years, I'd sit towards the back with a fellow by the name of Dan George. He was a pastor for Native Americans in our conference. And um, he would say to me, man, I feel, I feel awkward about this. This just doesn't feel right. And I'd say, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one that feels awkward. And then one day, at the last meeting, Dan George was called forward. I'll never forget what happened next. 
As they presented him the Bible, they said, we decided to do something different this time. Dan George does not have, by any stroke of imagination, he does not have the most baptisms in his church since our last session. But he has the most per capita for his church. And we decided we're going to just recognize someone who had the most per capita for his church. And they said, okay, so Dan, tell us your secret. How did you do it? I'll never forget what he said. He stood there and he shifted from one foot to the other, holding that Bible in his hand. And then he said, He said, I can't tell you how many times I've gone home from pastor's meetings feeling like I should turn in my resignation because I just don't seem to be able to cut it. I, I see these Bibles being given out and I hear about all the secrets of success, all the tricks and gimmicks and techniques. I go home and try to use those fresh techniques I just heard someone else did and I don't get anywhere. And he said, uh, I went home from the last pastor's meeting determined that I was going to resign from the ministry because I just couldn't produce baptisms. He said, I was so broken about it that I got down on my knees and I said, you know, Jesus, I guess I just wasn't meant to be a pastor. I guess I just don't have what it takes. I probably should quit. I said, you know what, Jesus, before I quit, I'm going to give it one more session. This is what I'm going to do this time. Instead of trying to see how many people I can baptize, I'm just going to tell them how much I love you and hope that they can get excited about knowing you too. That's all I'm going to do. Nothing else. I don't care if I get one baptism. I'm just going to introduce people to Jesus. That's all I'm going to do. And at the end of that, I'll decide whether to stay on board or not. He says, this was the time. And now you tell me, per capita, I have the most baptisms. Well, he said, and tears were streaming down his face. He said, you just gave this Bible to the wrong guy. He said, it belongs to Jesus. He did it. I did nothing. All I did was tell people that I love him. And he did it all. All the glory, he said, belongs to Jesus. You see how easy it is for us to get misguided about the glory? get our pictures taken with our candidates that we're going to go under with, send them in and tell how many we did this time. Oh, it's a subtle, subtle trap that the devil lays for us. But there is no glory for the work of man in the gospel. All the glory goes to Jesus. So what happens to man's glory? It goes to the dust. And that's why they did not like Jesus. That's why. They blew trumpets before they prayed to draw attention to their piety. And they did not want to admit that the Shekinah was missing. One woman had enough insight to see it and call it like it was and named her son Ichabod. The glory has departed. But when God's glory is absent, man's glory always rises to the top. And when God's glory rises to the top... Man's glory always goes to the dust. 
And John the Baptist says, He must increase and I must decrease. One of my friends, Charles Hogabrooks, maybe he's been here singing, I don't know. I love something he said to me one day. I told him how much the Lord had blessed me through the song that he had just shared. He's a musician. And he said to me, he said, Lee, he said, all the glory belongs to Jesus. He says, you know, really think about it. All we are is animated mud. (laughs) He says, where does mud get off taking any glory? (laughs) We're just animated mud. Just animated mud. Oh, but what about a little glory? Could we maybe just have a little glory? You know, the achievers and the self-help gurus, they hate this message. These people who can do it themselves, thank you very much. I stayed out of trouble. I was very moral. I kept a clean nose. I kept myself out of trouble. That's worth something now, isn't it? They want a little credit. Can't we have just a little credit? 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Even a little I have another quotation in front of my Bible. I read this one very frequently and I pray over this one very frequently. And this is what it says. It says, Anytime any measure of success accompanies the presentation of the gospel, in nine cases out of ten, the instrument will take the credit to himself. Elder Richards used to say to people at the back door and they shake his hand. Pastor Richards, they would say to him, that was the best sermon I have ever heard. And Elder Richards would say, you know, the devil was telling me that before I was half finished. <laughs> Galatians 6.14 God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. All the glory belongs to Jesus. Charles T. Everson said it beautifully when he said, We live in a time when centuries are compressed into a few short years. The names of great men appear on the horizon, flicker for a moment, and then are lost forever in the sea of forgetfulness. But there is one name that grows brighter with every passing day. It is the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. You give Him glory. Why? Because He's responsible for every good thing in you. Third part was worship Him. And friends, if God is not worshipped, man is the only other person who is. I mean, really. If I do not know a daily experience of faith and trust and fellowship with Jesus, then I'm not worshipping Him. If I come to church thinking that I'm worshipping, but I don't have time to fellowship with Him through the week, then six days I'm worshipping myself, and it's questionable whether I'm worshipping Him on the seventh. I don't have time for him. I'm worshiping myself. 
Now, you may not call it worship, but what's really happening is I'm putting myself in front of Him. If I can't find time to spend with Him, when He says, I'm standing at your heart's door and I'm knocking, if you just open it, I would come in, we'd fellowship together. Can we be friends? And I'm saying, well, you know, i got to run. Lots to do. Miles to go before I sleep. Out the door. Maybe I say a quick prayer for the, you know, for the day or read a quick text for the day with my hand on the doorknob. But no time for him. I put myself first. Means what? It means that I'm worshiping myself. That's what it really means. Now, it sounds pretty crude to say it that way, but that's the reality. That's what it is. That's what it is. Revelation 15.3 points out the reason for worshiping him. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you King of Saints. Helen Steiner Rice said it right when she said, Help me to always remember the story that thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Amen. Amen is right. Forever. Testimonies to Ministers, page 92. All power, all power is given into his hands that he may dispense rich gifts unto men imparting the priceless gift of his own righteousness to the helpless human agent. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of His Spirit in large measure. Not stay out of false churches and watch out for the beast, but get to know Jesus and depend upon Him. That's the third angel's message. In verity. In verity. All power given into His hands. He has gifts to give to men, including His righteousness. Gifts to give to men, including power to be an overcomer. Power to be victorious. Power to experience the transformation of the Spirit in your life from the inside out. Power. He gives these wonderful gifts. We have none. But He gives them to the helpless human agent. And what do you do to receive a gift? You come into the presence of the giver and you receive it with gratitude. If you're not coming into the presence of the giver, don't expect to get the gifts. So if you've come to the end of your rope, then you're ready to accept Christ's righteousness instead of your own. If you've come to the end of your rope, then you're ready to give Him the glory for anything that happens in your life, including any goodness, any success, any achievement. If you've come to the end of your rope, then you're ready to worship Him because you're through worshiping yourself, you got to the end of your rope. So Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. I want you to hear a song. This is just impulsive. I just put this together, so I hope it'll all work out. But I want you to hear a song called All the Glory Belongs to Jesus.
and banished all our fears. But from our many differences, his love has made us one. This song we sing has only just
belong to Jesus. Oh, man. Did you see that guy's crown on the ground beside him? Yeah, there's a reason why we cast our crowns at his feet. We know who gets the glory. That's the third angel's message. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are wonderful. You're more than wonderful. All the things you promised to do for us, to us, through us. And all you do is ask that we would find time to become better acquainted with you. What a wonderful message this is. What a message worth sharing. What a message to lighten the globe with its glory. That God's looking for friends. And that those who respond to His invitation to friendship, He will transform into His likeness. What a gift. What a Savior. We thank You and we praise You. Let all the people say, Amen.